0: and you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
1: Well, our show is about a couple scary things that happen. One is stalking in the workplace and cyberspace, and the other is harassment in the workplace. And since... Everybody that we know works in some place or, you know, most people are working. This is something that affects every single one of us. So we're going to talk about those technology issues, the privacy issues, and the legal issues, and we are so thrilled because we are going to be talking today with a DA from San Diego. I had read a couple of her articles and gave her a call, and we were just thrilled that Wendy Patrick is joining us. She is a San Diego County Deputy District Attorney, and she was named by her peers as one of the top 10 criminal attorneys in San Diego by the San Diego Daily Transcript. Most of her practice is trial work, and she's completed approximately 142 trials, including close to 100 criminal jury trials that range from hate crimes to torture to first-degree murder, scary stuff. In her current assignment in the Sex Crimes and Stalking Division, she prosecutes case and uh, lots of cases, including vice child molestation and sexually violent predators. Um, she's the former chair and the current co-chair of the San Diego County Bar Association's Ethics Committee, and she's one of 16 members of the California State Bar's Standing Committee on Professional Responsibility and Conduct. She's been featured as a media topic area expert on the radio, and we're thrilled to have her, as well as both local and international television. And she has um, presented workshops nationwide on subjects related to her book, Reading People by Random House, which was published in 2008. In addition to co authoring her book, Reading People, Miss Patrick was a contributing author to the Encyclopedia of Race and Racism and Hate Crimes: Causes, Controls, and Controversies, and she has her own column in various publications, both local and national. I, I always enjoy her articles that I read in the Daily Journal. On a personal note, this is, I thought, really fascinating. Um, Wendy Patrick holds a purple belt in karate. She's a concert violinist with the La Jolla Symphony. And she plays electric violin professionally with a rock band. Is that wonderful or what? She, and she, one of her really uh, dear to her heart is that she holds a Master of Divinity degree, Summa Cum Laude, from Bethel Seminary, San Diego, where she was awarded the Excellence in Preaching Award. No wonder she does such a great job for, with trials. So I want to thank you so much, Wendy, for joining us. Oh, thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure. Well, we've got you right in the middle of, of a trial, so we're going to just get right to it. So, first of all, I, I have no When did you start playing the violin? I know that's something we weren't going to talk about, but I think that's fascinating.
2: My entire life is the answer. One of those things you start when you're little and you never stop. That's how I got roped into that. Well, that is
1: just, you know, my father was a concert pianist and I didn't get any of his talent. But my daughter played the violin for many. She was first string in, in high school with the orchestra. And then, I don't know, she dropped it, but I used to love to listen to the violin. So I'm just really thrilled to hear. How do you have time for all this? You know, um, there's actually a lot you could
2: do every day if you sleep close to eight hours a night. It's amazing. I always tell people to try it. You have so much energy in the morning. I don't know. There's enough hours for the things you love, and the things you've just listed off is, is pretty much the things that I love to do. So I guess that's how you fit it all in.
1: Well, that's terrific, and I, and I so enjoy your article. So let's get started because I actually hear from a lot of people who experience cyber identity theft and cyber stalking. So I think let's talk about how pervasive is cyber stalking or just stalking in the workplace.
2: You know, Mar, that's a good question. We wish we were able to figure that out to uh, some more precision than we are. The reason is it's so significantly underreported that as many reports as we get, we have to assume it's going on far more than that. Um, stalking is one of those crimes where a lot of the victims think maybe it'll go away on its own maybe if they're nice to the perpetrator, maybe if they just hang on a little longer without making waves. And as you can imagine, in this economy, the last thing an employee wants to do is bring any drama into the workplace or raise some sort of an issue fearing that they may be fired or demoted or get a a job change of assignment. So we have to admit that it's probably far underreported, and as many cases as we get, I think there's probably a lot more out there with victims that are just afraid to come forward or that maybe don't recognize themselves as stalking victims. Right. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you've got to ask yourself if you are getting a weird feeling each time a particular person comes into the room or calls or emails. You know, one of the red flags is a lot of employees have to stop and ask themselves, why am I getting, why do I feel like this? Is it, am I getting unwanted attention or have I been threatened or followed or et cetera? So to answer your question, it's significantly underreported both online and live in the workplace.
1: Right. And online, I think people are, they're, they're anonymous. So they may not even know the real name or the real person. It's, you know, who, who's actually stalking them. They may not know. You may, you know, get an email from someone that it looks like someone you know, but you're you're not really sure that it's that person.
2: That's one of the scariest things about cyber stalking. And obviously with the explosion of Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all these ways to communicate in cyberspace, like you said, it's created an avenue for a different kind of stalking. A stalking that all the elements are the same, but many times, like you just said, we don't have a clue where these emails are coming from. And the scary thing about cyber stalking is some of these social networking sites give people the privilege of believing that they're at liberty to share details they would never share in person. That phenomena in and of itself creates just a breeding ground for potential stalkers to look for, you know, victims that suit their fancy or or maybe even victims they know in real life and would like to sort of send uncomfortable messages to, like you said, anonymously, or maybe they choose another identity and choose another photograph. You know, it's the big joke about, you know, Facebook and friend requests, and everyone knows people that accept every friend request that comes their way, which, you know, gives someone access to a host of private information about the person, which a potential stalker could then use to follow or, or stalk the person in real life in addition to online.
1: Yes. You know, I had this uh, gentleman that called me from the East Coast, and he was director of HR, and he was telling me about this story that he was trying to deal with because one of the employees was claiming that he was a victim of cyber identity theft. Someone else within the company had created an, an email address with this guy's name. And he was defaming him by just pretending to be him and sending um, email messages to the CEO and other people in the company and trying to destroy his reputation. So he would get fired. and He'd say, it's not me. It's not me. So, you know, those are just a little of the types of things that can happen right at your own workplace that somebody creates an email in your name, like a Hotmail account, and it's not even you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that that's a really scary thing and and again, you can do all of that pretty easily online. You know, the the thing with some of those accounts also is we may not ever be able to trace where some of those messages are coming from. Exactly. So even if someone, you know, is able to print out a screen full of emails, sometimes it's impossible to figure out who's on the other end, especially now with everybody sharing computers. Yeah. And, you know, someone logs on at a public coffee shop or logs on to a, a public terminal at the, at the library. I mean, how do you ever find out who's originating some of those emails? You're right. That's a big, big problem across the country.
1: Exactly. So what kind of people become stalkers, Wendy?
2: You know, that's a, um, a question that we've asked ourselves, you know, time and time again. The answer seems to be a, a number of different kinds of people could potentially come, uh, become stalkers uh... one of the the kinds of stalkers that we probably think about most frequently you know because hollywood has really sort of glamorized the stalker's profile for us it's this love interest turned obsession sure that's one of the kinds of stalkers you're going to see and especially a relationship gone bad type scenario we do see a lot of those but you also see a number of other kinds of stalkers one of the kinds of stalkers could be out of revenge in other words Their goal isn't to win the heart or the attention of the victim, but to get revenge on someone who has wronged them. Maybe they've been fired from a job or disrespected in their mind in some fashion. These kinds of stalkers can often operate in the same fashion that the uh, obsessional, delusional, love interest type stalkers operate. And then you also have stranger stalkers. Um, We've had some famous cases in this country, you know, the the shooting of President Reagan and uh, over a fascination with Jodie Foster. You get all sorts of things like that where maybe a celebrity is idolized and obsessed over by someone who's never met the person. So you get that type of sort of delusional stalker as well. Uh, You also see what we call serial stalkers, people that go from obsession to obsession and follow and threaten a host of different people. Uh, regarding who becomes a stalker, boy, if, if we knew that, it would be a lot closer to eradicating this kind of crime. The answer is it, it, could, be, it could be anyone, theoretically. Um, But let me tell you something interesting about that question. If you look at statistics, and I know that's a double-edged sword because you can go online and find statistics that go one way or another on almost any issue. Right. But one of the things with stalking cases is you see a lot of stalking cases nationally in things like um, the uh, psychology profession, the psychiatric profession. Often there are relationships of either power or support that could lend themselves to potentially becoming stalking-type relationships. When you are a a uh, psychiatrist patient, for example, and you're in a kind of need-support relationship with a caregiver, the psychiatrist, or or it can even be a a lawyer-client relationship, sometimes these are the kinds of cases that lend themselves to potential stalking cases. But then again, like I said on the other end of the spectrum, it can be just someone out of the blue That someone either knows or sees on the street or sees on television. So you really see it coming from all different angles as to how this type of crime starts.
1: And so, you know, the California Penal Code, you had talked about this in your article, Penal Code Section 646.9, and how it defines stalking as any person who willfully, maliciously, and repeatedly follows or willfully and maliciously harasses another person and who makes a credible threat with intent to place that person in reasonable fear for his or her safety or the safety of his or her immediate family is guilty of the crime of stalking. So let me just ask you something. How hard is that to prove when you get to court? Well, you know, all,
2: all cases are different. We have some cases that are fairly clear cut, as you can imagine. There are cases where there are Threats that are recorded on the answering machine or, or threats um, communicated via email, or where there's a victim, um, others are veiled or indirect. And you're right; sometimes it does make it more difficult. Um, part of the reason it's good to know the, the legal definition of stalking is it's not just following. You know, the Hollywood movies would have you think that, right? Right. If right. Sneaking around, putting a rose on the on the you know on the windshield of your car. Okay, that that doesn't do it legally. And uh, while all states are different, it's important to know that in California, you've got to have both the willful, malicious, repeatedly following or harassing, and making the credible threat with the intent to put that person in reasonable fear for his or her safety. So it is important to know all of the elements, and also that stalking is one of those crimes that can be charged as either a felony or a misdemeanor. Now, we like to try it, uh, most of the time we have the elements, we charge them as felonies, but It's good to know that it's one of those that a a judge could reduce in some circumstances to a misdemeanor. That's right there in the law. Um, But one of the other reasons it's important to know the law in each state is when you talk about something like cyber stalking, one of the things that will be an issue is where do you prosecute that case? What jurisdiction is going to be able to uh, write up a complaint.
1: Right. If but if well, somebody is in another state, yeah, you know, your own law enforcement agency might not even want to take the report. They say, well, you have to go and take that report somewhere else. So how does that work here in, with California?
2: Well, the same way it works in the in the rest of the states is it's kind of an issue of, you know, if, if we knew where the person was sending it from, it would be a lot easier. Sometimes we get some help in cases like this where if you know who the person is, obviously we can't, you know, charge anyone unless we know their identity. If we know where they are, where they're sending the messages, where they you know, know the victim from, it makes it a lot easier for us to you know, find a jurisdiction to, to charge the person in. And if we do have an ID on the suspect, usually jurisdiction is not an issue. Um, but it, it is important to also know that the elements of stalking are the same whether in California, whether it's online or live. In other words, there's no separate cyber stalking section that we use when the threats come over the Internet. Uh, But another reason it's important to know the elements, and it's important to convey the elements to potential victims, is a lot of people honestly don't legally recognize themselves as being subject to these kinds of behaviors. And that's unfortunate, because one of the the things that we know from watching the news, the lead off on every hour, the, the crime stories, is that sadly, some stalking cases do end up turning deadly. Some of yes. them do. And every stalking victim worries about that. And ironically, that's one of the reasons some people don't report, is they fear that it's just going to get worse for them if they say anything. And then the, the problem ends up being if something god-awful happens, nobody in law enforcement knew that there was an issue. Nobody in the victim's place of work knew that this person was being uh, harassed or stalked. And that's dangerous for people that work in offices where everyone's got access keys to come in in the evenings and on the weekends.
1: Right, and if you're working overtime or something, and that person is also working overtime. Yeah. And sometimes, I don't know if you remember this uh, case out on the East Coast, but it was a, a very dramatic case where a young woman in her 20s, didn't know that this guy had, um, you know, he'd liked her in high school and she she didn't even know. But for him, he thought that she was shunning his advances. And he went on to this online um, information broker, DocuSearch, and he searched where she worked. And he also searched and got her social security number. Well, that's what he did first. He got her social security number by buying it. And then he found out where she worked and then he went and killed her. And oh. she didn't even have a clue that this was going on. She didn't even know that he had these, you know, thoughts about her for years and years. And this is like here she is like six or seven years later after she graduated high school and he came and killed her. So, you know, unfortunately, on the Internet, you can find out a lot about people and you can stalk them without them even knowing.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it is. And one, one of the things that, um, especially when you talk about things going on on the Internet, one of the best preventative measure, measures that, that women in particular can um, can take to heart is not to put out the type of information that would make them interesting to a stalker. And what do I mean by that? Yes. So you know, if you look at, you know, internet safety tips, let's just say, uh, lots of women choose uh, photos that are not revealing. Maybe they're not even uh, a photo, but maybe an icon or something. They don't choose revealing screen names. In other words, they're sensible enough not to draw attention to themselves as an attractive prospect for a stalker. Now, the other side of the coin is, is many young women nowadays would argue, but I'm using social networking sites to meet new friends.
1: Right. So
2: they're in this catch twenty two where they want to reveal something of themselves, their hobbies, where they live, where they go to school. But on the other side, you know, their parents and older sisters and brothers are probably saying don't put as don't put that that level of identifying information out there for someone who wants to stalk you, like in the case you just described, yeah. to be able to find you so easily. You don't want them to know where you are each minute of the day. If you're constantly blogging all day long, you're going to be pretty easy to find for a stalker if there's something in your profile that interests you that person. Right, and or talk about a party that, that you're
1: going to go to, or a restaurant that you're going to go to. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff, somebody can just end up at the restaurant that you're at.
2: Well, you bet. And you hope they, if they're going to follow you, they end up in a public place, because as you know, sometimes they end up at the person's house, or yes. nobody else's home.
1: What was really scary when that happened, um, I went with some friends to the Pageant of the Masters in Laguna in Laguna Beach last year, and we brought their teenage daughters with, And during the the whole, you know, theatrical performance, um, this girl was, you know, the daughter was getting all these text messages and she said where she was. And then he wrote back and said and she didn't really know him. All right. And he wrote back and he said, oh, I came to the pageant. I'll meet you out front afterwards. I thought I was going to die. I just said, absolutely not. You're staying with us. You are not going to get near him. And I just went nuts about that because I thought, oh, my God. You let him know that you were here and he was able to come here waiting for us two hours later. This is not somebody you even want to talk to again. Delete that immediately, you know. So I think that people get, you know, like you were talking about, they get on Facebook or they get on MySpace or they get on all these different social networking and these people sound wonderful and it sounds like fun, but that's just the insidious part of it.
2: Yeah, it really is, and um, the, the scary thing about some of those sites is it's interesting. People often cite uh, something like Facebook as somewhere where you pretty much connect with folks you know offline. That's at least one of the stereotypes of Facebook, which is very different from uh, some other sites, especially some of the dating sites that are out there where the point is you're, meeting, you're going on the site to meet people you don't know. Yes, And when you're in doing something like that and it turns ugly, it turns wrong, you're getting um, harassing messages, threatening messages, et cetera, you know, one of the things that people have to do is, is close that account. You know, lots of times people try to reason with stalkers. They think that they're going to bargain with them or maybe they're going to sweet talk them. And, you know, one of the rules that we often, you know, tell our victims, please try to follow is not to give the person any positive encouragement whatsoever. In other words, if you let 25 phone calls go unanswered by the person, then you answer the 26th phone call. What have you just told the stalker? Oh yeah. That phone calls to reach you.
1: Exactly. That they can just, you know, the more persistent they are, the better they're going to, they're going to get more out of you.
2: Right. Exactly. So the best (sighs) advice we give is you tell the person to stop, that it's unwanted behavior. You're not interested and record all the correspondence you can in order to have something to turn over to law enforcement. If it, you know, if it ends up being threatening and meets all the different elements, if you can at least, you know, keep tabs, keep the, the records of your phone bill, print out the text messages before they're deleted by the phone company, whatever you can do, it gives law enforcement something to work with. So when it's in, in fact a case can be filed, there actually is some hard evidence. Um, now, that's not to say that cases aren't filed when it's, it's a he said, she said. Right. One of the things that does dissuade some victims, however, is the fact that unlike cases of domestic violence, let's say, where someone calls the police and they have bruises or burns or scratches or they're clearly injured, some stalking victims feel that they don't have anything to tell law enforcement, not understanding that it's even the verbal conduct if it meets the elements can qualify as stalking it doesn't nobody has to point a gun in your face for you to be a stalking victim it can It can be any kind of a, a credible threat you know per the penal code section that we were discussing earlier and more victims have to realize what those elements are and that it doesn't need to be someone you know coming in and, and grabbing you and putting a knife to your throat before you can call the police and and be someone that might be a victim of stalking
1: right. And I think one of the things that I think can be a little bit confusing in this statute is it talks about reasonable fear for his safety or her safety. You know, what's considered a reasonable fear? I know this one woman called me. She was an elderly woman. She and her husband were part of this listserv, you know, for a, a senior community. And there were, you know, maybe 50 people on the listserv, 50, 60 people. And um This woman would, you know, the woman who had contacted me said, you know, she would write about if they went on vacation and she'd share her ideas. And one day she got an email that was sent to the listserv and it looked like it came from her husband, but her husband didn't even know how to use email. I mean, he never even knew how to use a computer and he was saying horrible things about her horrible things and sending it to the entire listserv. And, you know, she called me and she said, is this cyber stalking? And I said, well, you know, this is kind of a weird one, because are you in fear for your life or fear for anything that that's going to happen to you? And she said, well, I don't know, but it's really humiliating. Well, Long story short, what we did was she wrote, I had her write an email to the entire listserv and say, this is not my husband. My husband has never used, touched the computer. He doesn't know how to touch it. And um, somebody on here is doing this. And I have now hired an attorney, Mari Frank, go to her website. And uh, you better come forward. And we did find out who it was. He did reveal himself. But it was more of a civil issue than a criminal issue, really. Yeah, but it was you terrifying. Know,
2: you, you see all kinds of... Uh of potential defamation cases and invasion of privacy cases, civil tort claims, and of course, you know, intentional infliction of emotional distress, negligent infliction—that right. Type of thing. And you know, it's true. If you can figure out, you know, who the potential offender is, those are great civil cases.
1: Um, the but but they don't necessarily rise, and this is why I wanted to clarify this yeah. because if you're listening and you have someone who is harassing you, but it doesn't get to the point. Of you're in fear of them, you know. I mean, how do you draw that line? Doesn't that get crazy, Wendy? Um,
2: not really in the within the criminal sphere, because um, in order to be guilty of stalking, it's got to be stalking. It's got to be not only the willfully, maliciously, and repeatedly following or harassing, but the way it's worded is and making a credible threat, threat. with mm. the intent to place that person in reasonable fear for his or her safety, right. or the safety of an immediate family. Right. And uh, again, it's you know, television and, and movies, they do us no favors in throwing the term stalking around where it doesn't fit. Yeah. And that's why I believe many folks who are disdained or insulted or their, their privacy has been invaded sometimes immediately think, oh, well, gosh, this is stalking. But, you know, I, sometimes you, you, there's an argument to be made for better safe than sorry. You know, yes, if somebody oh, is absolutely. In fear, in fear believes they're a stalking victim. You know, I mean, it's always a good idea to call the police if, if you are in a, in a scenario like right, that. Right, because you don't know is, if it's going to yeah, escalate. Exactly. The worst thing that can happen is you are a righteous stalking victim, you don't call the police, no case is filed because no one knows that the, the, the conduct is going on, and no one's able to prosecute it. Yes. That's what we don't want to have happen, and I'll tell you, if you're an employer out there nowadays, boy, the last thing you want is to have something like this going on in your company and not know about it. Kind of the same thing with sexual harassment. Yes. Lawyer wants to know what's going on in his or her office. So they're not finding out the first time they are named as a defendant in a lawsuit.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So if you're listening to this and you feel somehow threatened, either Civilly or criminally, it's probably a good idea to tell your employer and just, you know, I know you might be in fear, like you don't want to be a troublemaker, but it's best to let them know what's going on and provide evidence, whether it's emails or voicemails or whatever you can to just let somebody know. And I think one other thing that's important is if you do go to the police um, you know, even if you don't know if it's going to escalate to something really fearful, you can ask for at least an informational report. Tell them, because if, if they're going to be worried, like, oh, gosh, we can't investigate. We can't really take this report. It's a civil matter. Just say you want to have an informational report, and then they won't feel that they have to investigate, right? Um, you
2: know, all law enforcement agencies are very, very different. So all of that sort of depends on the city you live in. But, yeah. you know, the, the bottom line is, You know, give it a shot if you are in the position of feeling uncomfortable, but at the very least, you know, internally within your company, if it's something that is clearly not criminal, if it is perhaps a sexual harassment type scenario, there, I mean, all companies now are going to open investigation into what the conduct is. Right. You know, and, and sexual harassment um, is still remains pervasive in many workplaces. And you know, Mari, you almost think how can that be with the amount of lawsuits that are filed, with yeah. the amount of exposure and press and training that we all have to take, how can we still be seeing sexual harassment in the workplace? Yet we
1: are and, and in fact your article talked to how it's been increasing increasing and that just blows my mind I mean I remember I had done MCLE training and providing training on sexual harassment for for MCLE and I can't believe that this is still going on but you you talked about some interesting uh, aspects of that in your article about you know when people are flirting and then a, a, a relationship falls apart why don't you talk about that
2: yeah, you know, one of the most interesting trends that we've seen uh, in recent years is an increase on reported male-on-male sexual harassment. In fact, the amount of suits have, have nearly doubled. It's, um, these are numbers from the EEOC, who prosecutes these cases and, and uh, actually sends out press releases when they come in. And the the statistics are what they are. What everyone wants to know is why are we seeing more of these cases, it can't possibly be because there's just this rash of sexual harassment exploding in the workplace. It's more likely due to an increase in reporting would be what most, the way most people would explain those statistics because you would think that we should be seeing less instances of sexual harassment in the workplace. But many of the men who have been interviewed have said, I got sick of it, and I am, I qualify as a plaintiff in this type of suit, and I'm going to exercise that right. And it's, you know, nobody should have to put up with this kind of conduct in the workplace. Um, a couple of interesting points. On
1: and, mail, you know, just before you said that, you know, it's very closely related to stalking, too, because if you uh, shun the advances and they keep bothering you and you're in fear of your safety, then that also could be. Some somewhat of, of stalking, right?
2: You know, it, it could certainly turn into stalking yeah. if it became pervasive enough, and it ended up meeting the elements and the credible threat and all right. the rest of that. Yeah, and you know, the the weird thing about the, the workplace is many um, stalkers might learn about their victims in the workplace. Maybe you know, there's a lot of people with desks sort of all out in the open, and someone is passing a desk and noticing photographs or theater tickets or postcards, whatever it is that either piques the interest of a potential offender or, you know, gives gives a, a true offender some real good clues as to how the person is spending their private time. Right. Now, certainly, you know, employees don't want to be just completely paranoid, locking up everything in their desk, and many employees don't do that. But folks that have been stalked before sometimes have learned the hard way that, it's not the best idea to just sort of let it all hang out there at your workstation and, and really put all these intimate details about other areas of your life out there for everyone else to be able to see, especially if you work in a workplace where maybe there's a high turnover rate, maybe it's a temporary agency, maybe it's a setting where there are so many people working there that you can't possibly know anyone. Because, you know, we talked a little about stalking, but the scary thing about a stalking case is the victim not knowing whether the defendant is all the way on the other side of the world or in the cubicle next door to them. Right. There's no way of knowing. But but back to your question on sexual harassment, you know, if it is something that is going on in the workplace, uh, one of the things that many our people are doing, and that may be a little bit um, explaining the increase in reporting, is they are not standing for it. They're reporting it right away and things are being done. Um, some of the most Interesting aspects on this male-on-male sexual harassment, though, is that it seems to be not about sexual behavior as much as it seems to be about power, about Uh domination, about dominance, control, Mm -hmm. you know, these sorts of issues rather than somebody that is truly, you know, harassing somebody they're sexually interested in. That doesn't seem to be the trend.
1: Hmm. We're speaking with Wendy Patrick, who is the San Diego County Deputy District Attorney, and she was named by her peers as one of the top criminal attorneys in San Diego by the San Diego Daily Transcript. I've read several of her articles, fascinating. She does a lot of jury trials, and right now she is in uh, her current assignment in the Sex Crimes and Stalking Division. Um, And she prosecutes cases involving vice, child molestation, sexually violent predators. And she also is the co-author of Reading People. And she also contributed to Encyclopedia of Race and Racism and Hate Crimes, Causes, Controls and Controversies. And um, so Wendy's talking to us about stalking and sexual harassment. You know, I wanted to tell you this weird story about this woman who contacted me, Who, and I can actually give her name because she was willing to go public. She was in the New York Times. What happened was is she started getting men literally coming to her door and calling her about this alleged um website that she put up, or not website, but you know, she had put up something in something like a, you know, match dot com. It wasn't match dot com, but it was a, a dating site. And um apparently someone had pretended to be her, cyber identity theft. And they put up all this information about, oh, that she had, you know, fantasies of being raped and she gave out you know, the person who created it gave her phone number in Manhattan, gave her address. So all these people started coming to her door. And finally, you know, she'd say, get away from me. You know, I don't know who you are. And she would scream at him. She was getting terrified. So finally, one guy said, well, look, you know, you put this up on the Internet. What do you expect? And she said, well, what do you mean? Where'd you find it? Long story short, she tries to go to the Manhattan po- the police in New York City. And they said, you know, there's nothing we can do. They wouldn't even take a report. Oh. And so she called me from New York. And then I said to her, well, this is cyber identity theft. Somebody is stealing your identity. And we were able to use actually portions of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And I said, you are entitled as an identity theft victim. You're entitled to a police report wherever you are. That's under, you know, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, even though this isn't financial fraud. So we were able to finally get the police involved when it got on the first page of the New York Times. <laughs> oh, and my. then we were able to use the Fair Credit Reporting Act to get all documentation from the website because they didn't want to take down that, um, that information about her. They were giving her a hard time. And um, so we were able to find out. And lo and behold, about a month later, we were able to find out that it was an old roommate from college about 10 years before. Oh, gosh. And, you know, so the perpetrator of this actually wasn't the one who was doing the harassing. You know, I mean, it was a third party harassing and she had fear for her life. But the police wouldn't do anything until we got involved. Is that amazing?
2: Oh, you know what? Thankfully, you got involved.
1: Yes. Yes. And there was a case like that in Orange County, California as well is that this a security expert had done this. It was the first cyber stalking case that was ever prosecuted in Orange County, California. Very similar. A, a woman had dated some guy who was a security expert. And after they broke up, he put up stuff on the Internet and pretty much invited men to come over to her house. Wow. So, you know, if this happens, to you definitely go to the police and make them take a police report. And see if you, you know, the problem is a lot of law enforcement agencies don't have the resources to go in and actually do the kind of work that they need to do to find out who it is. Do you find that as well? Well, you know, um,
2: resources are at a premium all over the country. And, you know, the the economy isn't helping us any as far as, you know, having more people on the force and then working in victim witness units um, to help. We have, uh, obviously, we're very lucky in San Diego County, we have a lot of folks that are very, very dedicated to assisting stalking victims. Um, sometimes even if we can't identify a perpetrator, there are, are places that people can go for help and support and this type of thing. Um, but it does, you're right, it remains a problem nationwide that there will always be those cases that are not taken seriously and unfortunately should be. And, you know, we're also aware of, of when they make headlines, you know, when you have someone calls the police three times and they say, forget it, it's a civil matter, or right. call us if he actually does show up only to have... <laughs> Right. Show up and kill the person. I mean, we've heard about cases like that, you know, year after year. Uh, you know, law enforcement agencies do their best as far as allocating resources to, this, to these types of crimes. They take it very seriously. You know, all law enforcement agencies want to be able to assist these victims. It's really a priority in our country to, you know, to, to try to, you know, assist victims that are being terrorized like this. Sometimes the unfortunate reality is, you know, there just maybe aren't enough squad cars to have one in front of every house where this sort of thing might be happening. It's not that they don't want to allocate the resources. It sometimes is just a matter of, you know, cost and demand and and trying to do the best they can with the resources that are available.
1: Right. And also that, you know, a lot of this going on on the Internet, you really have to be an Internet guru. You need to be pretty savvy as far as what's going on with the computers And unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of the law enforcement guys aren't really trained in that area of of technology. So, you know, we don't have enough people in the technology end of it. They have to hire people outside, and there's no money for that. So a lot of this stalking is going on technology-wise, too, right?
2: Well, one of the things about um, about the Internet as far as, you know, how familiar you are technology-wise is stalkers – Some of them will often, um, it's easy prey pray for them to find a rookie, someone who obviously, by the way they are communicating online, is not familiar with the ins and outs of, of cyberspace communication. That kind of person is an easier target than someone who is very savvy about the privacy settings of all the different social networking sites and you know if you're on facebook and you have 500 friends you're probably not a, a facebook rookie <laughs> right, right you know versus some of these people that you know are on maybe dating sites for example that say sometimes they say in their profile i'm not very good at this or yeah. i'm not really sure how this works that is sort of a red flag for a would-be stalker that this might be someone that would never be able to trace or even know how to begin thinking about tracing where a harassing or offensive communication is coming from. And the other thing, Mari, about, you know, why is cyber-stalking sort of this different animal, we have talked a little bit about how people feel the liberty to um, be a little more flamboyant online than they would be in person. That goes not just for potential victims, but also for, for potential offenders. Some people have no problem asking very personal questions of other folks online that they would never right. in a million years <laughs> deem it appropriate to ask in person. So in cyberspace, we've got sort of this avatar fantasy world where people are <laughs> acting very differently than they act in real life. Right. To a stalker, boy, that can be, you know, someone died and went to heaven. If you're if you were interested as a stalker in finding someone to have these, you know, very intimate conversations about, you know, maybe sexual kinds of topics you would never pursue in real life. And like you said, the anonymity of it, you know, unless you're going to do what that guy did show up at patches of the Master. Right, (laughs) right. Unless you're going to do something like that, you know, you could remain anonymous as long as you want. Worse than that, you could remain anonymous and be making threats so that the poor victim is just walking around in a complete and constant state of paranoia, Not knowing whether the person is serious, whether it's somebody that lives around the corner from them, somebody at the workplace, you just don't know who it is, which is why, you know, many women especially nowadays are are really giving a second thought to how much personal information they put out there in any forum on the Internet because it's not true that stalkers only come from certain classes of society. They come come from any class of society, from the most well-to-do professionals, to, you know, the unemployed, to the criminal population. There's, there's no way to say, oh, well, I'm using an upscale social networking site to reveal my private information so I'm safe. Nothing is potentially safe out there on the Internet, just like it wouldn't be safe to go to a cocktail party, you know, dressed in some skimpy outfit and revealing all of these fantasies of yourself. Right. Why you wouldn't do it in person, why would you risk doing it in cyberspace?
1: Right, right. We are speaking with Wendy Patrick, who is a San Diego County Deputy District Attorney, and she is now on her current assignment in the Sex Crimes and Stalking Division, and she prosecutes cases involving bias, child molestation sexually violent predators that's got to be scary too and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net and I'm Mari Frank your host of Privacy Piracy. Wendy I gotta ask you now that you're in this current assignment with sexually violent predators and you're a beautiful woman I mean I've seen your pictures I mean do you ever have any worries about this for yourself with these people or their friends?
2: You know, everyone always has that thought in the back of their mind just to make sure, you know, you're always alert. Your keys are in your hand. You're, there's gas in your the tank of your car. You know, we, you all take precautions like that. But, um, you know, ironically, if you look at the statistics, most disgruntled criminals statistically, you know, believe that their own attorney has done something wrong before they go after the prosecutor.
1: <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> but every
2: time we sort of make that, you know, assumption based on statistics, you know, you open the paper and see some prosecutor was gunned down in some state. So, you know, the bottom line is, is just to, to live carefully in, in every aspect of your life when you're in this business. And that goes for anyone involved in the criminal justice system in any capacity. You know, and especially on the topic of, of stalkers. I mean, you know, who knows what kind of person involved in the system might end up being a potential victim yes. you know and, and the the scary thing with that is many people that have access to or or are responsible for these people that do these these heinous crimes might really not know what the signs of friendliness are versus some sort of uncomfortable communication right so it's it's just best you know whatever part you play in the system, if that is your profession to just be be safe and sensible at all times and and please don't put too much information about yourself online no <laughs>
1: Especially you know if and,
2: that's what you do for a
1: living exactly, you know I remember years ago a friend of mine was a captain in um in the police force in L.A., okay, with this uh, Los Angeles, uh, the Los Angeles County uh, Police uh, Sheriff's Department, and she had me read this book called "The Gift of Fear" by Gavin De Oh, yes. And I remember her having. You know, we talked about that how important it is. And years ago, you know, I worked in the DA's office here in Orange County for Bill Bedsworth, who is now a Fourth District uh, Appellate Court Justice, but. I just remember um, reading that book and and they he said, if you feel something in your gut, don't dismiss it. Don't dismiss it like, oh, I shouldn't think about this. If somebody's in an elevator with you and you get a creepy feeling in your gut, get the hell out of that elevator quickly. Just right, get out. Right, even sorry. if it, Yeah. And I just remember reading that. So, uh, you know, we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California in Irvine. And if you're listening to this and you have that. Yucky feeling inside. Get away, just get away, and read that book, The Gift of Fear by Gavin de Becker. It's probably so cheap now because I remember it was years ago, but I, it was very, very interesting to read that. So, um,
2: there were some great stories in that book. And yes. you, know, the, you really just sort of nailed it when you said, you know, if, if you do get that feeling for whatever reason, whether it's an elevator, whether you're crossing the street, there is no downside to getting out of the scenario. Right. You know, it doesn't matter. It, where you are, who the other person is, what what kind of a stranger they are, or or even how many people are around. Because we've seen cases where some of this stuff goes down in public. Yes. So if you get that weird feeling, you know, your advice is right on. Get out of the situation before anything potentially happens. Better safe than sorry. In
1: other right. Ways. Don't worry about what the, you know, that you don't want to be rude or something. If you don't feel you good bet. about it, just get out of there. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about some things that, uh, for example, we were getting back to the sexual harassment and the um, stalking. So we have a lot of people who are driving by who are employers. So what kind of advice do you have employers with regard to reducing sexual harassment and possible stalking behavior?
2: Well, I'll tell you, some of the, um, the best ways that many employers are, are using nowadays is not just giving the employees a training but a training, and what comes at the end of the training, Mari?
1: Enforcement. A <laughs> test. <laughs> yes, a test. And, and enforcement so that if somebody does screw up, they get it right away.
2: That's right. And so you know there will be consequences if you end up engaging in that kind of a conduct. But the nice thing about a test for
1: employers
2: and knowing that there will be enforcement if something goes wrong is employees are clearly on notice what does and doesn't constitute improper behavior in the workplace. And like you said, they know that something will be done if they violate these rules. And many employers nowadays are are also thinking that it's a good idea to sort of be out there among their employees. If you are, you know, the big boss in the corner office and your door is always shut, you have no way of knowing what's going on in the lunchroom over the noon hour what jokes are being made, what posters are on the walls, what nicknames your employees are using to refer to each other. And, you know, you will never know unless it's brought to your attention. And if it's brought to your attention, in some senses it might be too late to rectify the error. There's probably already an issue created, in which case, like you said, there will be the enforcement that hopefully will have been discussed at the training. But you're right, it's a a scary place for employers because – They're afraid of that new or should have known standard a lot of the time. They may not really know, but if they're the only ones who didn't know, they should have (laughs) known.
1: Exactly, exactly. And they have to have written policies. Obviously, they have to have a written policy, but just having a written policy and have people read it and take a test isn't going to be enough unless people are, you know, the managers are constantly looking at them, letting them know what's going on, maybe having some policies that says, you know, you don't date at work. You know, or you, you you have to, that's kind of hard because I remember my niece met her husband. They were both CPAs at um, McDonald's in Chicago and, um, you know, McDonald hamburger, corporate, corporate headquarters, and they would play tennis together and stuff. And they, you know, for the longest time had to be very, very careful. They ended up getting married and they've been married a long time, but it's, it's kind of a rough one to say, well, don't date it. You know, that's how people meet their husbands or their wives. It, Many people say, wouldn't you rather meet somebody in, in a, who's making an income in the workplace than at a bar? Yes, yes. It's <laughs> really a safer that. place. But then if it falls apart or if, you it's know, true. if a manager falls in love with someone who works for him, then that could be a worse problem than just somebody who's a peer and the same level of you uh, that you, know, you are. know, that
2: is such a hot button issue in workplaces. It just comes up all over the place. You get, you know, people claiming favoritism because so-and-so is dating the boss or dating in a... A superior, you know, those issues are will probably always be present to some extent. If you are at a workplace that doesn't have any kind of policy against dating, and, and you're absolutely right, it not only if you have that kind of a policy, not only should it be in writing, but it should be discussed frequently enough to where no one can claim they didn't know about. It.
1: Right, right.
2: But you always have that kind of thing um, raising its ugly head as well. Gosh, is this actionable now?
1: I mean, it even happens in
2: some circumstances in which it could be actionable if it is pervasive enough to where it actually is creating a hostile work environment. Right. You know, and there's some some case law on that issue, one uh, uh, both ways when it is and when it isn't. But nonetheless, you know, you get more and more people that are willing to file claims. And interestingly, uh, and this will probably come as no surprise to you, Mari, many of these people are suing for, for retaliation. Right. And some courts are saying you know the original behavior you called harassment would not have stood up in court, but your retaliation claim will. Yes, so isn't that ironic?
1: Yeah, said if they if they move product, the they move the victim to a you know I've I've done mediations of those kinds of cases many times. They'll say, well, what we did was you know they move the victim to a different job and then of course the the victim really liked the other job and didn't right. want to go to the new job and they said well we were doing that to protect her or him protective
2: bias you hear yeah, that yeah and the that's time.
1: baloney because you know what they should be doing is taking some action against the manager but if the manager is the manager in marketing and he's bringing in a ton of money there's some political issues about that oh, it, which it i is so good yes, yeah
2: is, i mean there are issues all over the place with those types of things and and you're gonna have that when you've got men and women working together or or, you know, it even happens in same-sex workplaces. There are issues of power and control and friendship and alliances and loyalty, and that's probably never going to go away. The best we can do is, like you suggested, you have a good written policy, you have good training, you, know, you test them on their knowledge of the policy, and you let them know there will be consequences and enforcement, and at the very least a full investigation if one of these types of things is alleged
1: and we're not talking just about big companies. So, you know, if you're driving by and you're listening to this and you say, "Oh, I have a small office, maybe there's only 10 of us." Hey, these same laws apply right. to whether you are a tiny company or you are a large company or you're a law firm. I mean, I I've actually done a lot of mediations when law firms were involved and you would think of all the places that you wouldn't find sexual harassment. <laughs> it would be a law firm, but it's all again about power. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, Wendy, You know, years ago when I worked in the um, in the DA's office and I worked on some child molestation cases, I worked in writs and appeals and I wanted to ask you about what parents should do because we hear about these child molestations. I remember I worked on one case that was so egregious he was a Sunday school teacher that everybody loved. I mean, this is the typical one, right? That everybody loves him. <laughs> right. And um, he was kid. molesting all of these little boys, all these little seven year olds and eight year olds. So I'm now that you're prosecuting these cases, what are some important things that we should be telling parents to do and what not to do with their kids?
2: You know, I'll tell you nowadays, it's important to know anybody's history that is in the, has that capacity where they're in charge of kids because you're absolutely right. It's, you know, if you are a child molester, of course you're going to gravitate towards jobs. that gives you access to kids and that kind of a trusting type of relationship. You know, the interesting thing about, especially some of these sexually violent predator cases, you, you can't tell these people by looking. They don't look different. They don't act different. They may be highly intelligent. They may have a number of degrees and good jobs.
1: And they may but, be married with their own kids, and right? they
2: may be married with their own kids. That's absolutely true. You know, one of the things at the very least, you know, we talked. To, we just finished talking about all the bad things about the Internet. One of the good things about the Internet <laughs> yeah. is it has made it a lot easier to use websites that list sex offenders, whether it's serious sex offenders, not serious, whatever it is. It's made it a lot easier for citizens to be able to check on who's who in their neighborhood. Now, many parents, rightfully so, are just at this, you know, day and age they are not comfortable leaving their kids with adults they don't know. It's as plain and simple as that. And it doesn't matter if it's at a church, at a school, at a sporting event. Right. You know, unless it's someone that is, is intimately acquainted with the family or it's a family member, many parents just say, I'm not going to take the risk of, of really, you know, subjecting a child to some behavior that could change their life. You know, it's just not worth it. And many more parents are, are taking that route. Um, if it's somebody that the, you may even find people that are employed by school districts that you know find themselves getting charged with some of this stuff. Right. So it's just it's a it's a difficult um, scenario. Um, I think parents are erring on the side of not leaving their kids with any strangers, no, regardless of the agency the person works for, and they're also getting a lot more savvy about knowing how you know you made the joke about the one lady' whose husband didn't know how to touch the computer right Many adults are making sure that they are not that guy. everyone should know how to use the computer and to check to make sure that your children are safe with whoever it is that is working at the school or the church or whatever you know checking your area. Um, everyone should know how to do that. It's just smart business nowadays in, in ensuring safety for the community and for your kids.
1: And you know what's so hard is a lot of the kids are so much more savvy than their parents when it comes to the <laughs> internet. I mean, here in Orange County, California, I'm a sheriff reserve in, in our the high truck crime unit for the the sheriff reserves. They teach a course to parents for free called internet and your child and, oh, right. and and literally you know the parents have to learn what the kids already know it's and true. I think that's parents have their kids load their iPods for them if they even have iPods right know, because
2: the kids are very very savvy at this stuff you're right and
1: these kids are going online and they're talking to people and they think everything is cool and they don't know who they're talking to it's like that that uh, New York Times cartoon where the two dogs are talking and they say you don't know who you they don't know you're talking to a dog on the internet you know <laughs> And you don't know who yeah. you're talking to, yeah. and, and that is just what is so frightening.
2: Well, especially when you get some of the cases where these kids are talking to, you know, 30 or 40-somethings that are posing as 6- and 7-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, you know, pre-teens or whatever it is on the Internet to try yeah. to hook up meetings. Right. You know, try to arrange a play date, and you're talking to a 40-year-old guy. I mean, that stuff happens. You, we see That's the kind of thing that some of these scary shows are made of. Right. is people that do that you know shows like to catch a predator dateline all the right. all the high profile reality type right. shows a lot of them start with that, and you know the, the thing they always say when they get caught is that it's their first time. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. We all think that's what is it? So. Dateline? Is it? Is it Dateline that I watch and
1: these guys do this? I mean, it's bad
2: luck. You get caught on your first time doing
1: that. Yeah, so yeah, so. exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and you talked about well as somebody you really know, but I I have heard of cases where it's even a family member. So you know, yeah, you bet. You got to talk to I kids, too. right? I mean, don't you think that you have to talk to your kids about? unwanted touching and and it's never going to be your fault because i remember i've heard this um this interview with this guy who was molested many years ago by a very close family member who happened to have also been a priest (laughs) oh my yeah so he was molested and he kept they, you know, the, the priest who was the family member kept saying, well, don't tell anybody this, you know, you shouldn't do anything like this. So I think you almost have to talk to kids nowadays and and warn them, you know, if you ever feel uncomfortable, come to me, it's never going to be your fault. You're never going to get in trouble. I don't care if it's a stepdad or who it is, right?
2: You know, and that, that's really, really good advice, because, you know, we actually hire experts that come in and, and explain to the jury a lot of the different types of behaviors and mannerisms and some of the symptomology that kids and, and even into adulthood will develop who have been molested and who haven't told. And, you know, you raise some of the issues. You've got issues of loyalty, if it's a family member. You've got issues of love. You have, you know, issues of fear. And like you said, they think it's going to be their fault. And you also get kids that wouldn't in a million years want their friends at school to ever know what they're Right, going on. So, right. I mean, like you said, you've got just a host of reasons why someone wouldn't tell so you're right it's great to give the reason give the kid a reason to tell letting them know what's right and wrong and that you know and that it is the right thing to do to tell and you know the, the sad thing is many of our cases the parents have told the kids about this
1: and right. it, it's
2: the kids still don't tell you get people who for the very first time reveal this sort of thing when they're later in life yep you know uh, well into adulthood before they feel comfortable telling someone else whether it's a spouse or finally a counselor or whatever. So you're right, these things persist into adulthood, but it's always a good idea to give those kids the option. And like you said, letting them know that that's not okay.
1: Well, we are out of time. Do you believe this, Wendy? You are. We could just probably talk all day. We're going to have we to have you... We probably could. <laughs> you're going to have to send me your books, and we'll have you back again, and we so appreciate it. I know you have to go back to trial too, so thank you so much for um, pleasure, taking Mars. your time. You're terrific, and we will have you back again. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. And visit our website. Give us uh, some feedback here. Go to, write us an email, see our upcoming guests, listen to archived interviews, download podcasts. We want to hear from you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Stay private.
2: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.